On the cover of reporter Mark Bergen's recent book, it says he will take the reader, quote, inside YouTube's chaotic rise to world domination, unquote. Bergen has reported on Google for the past seven years. YouTube was bought by Google in 2014 for $1.6 billion. In Mark Bergen's prologue, he reports that more than 2 billion people visit YouTube every month, making it the second most visited search engine on Earth. Google is first. Bloomberg reporter Bergen writes that YouTube is still dominated by music, gaming, and kids' video. Mark Bergen, at the front of your book, you have a quote from somebody by the name of Logan Paul, and you have quote marks around it saying, we found a dead body in the Japanese suicide forest, YouTube 2017. The quote is, it was going to be a joke. This was all going to be a joke. Why did it become so real? What's that about? This was um, one of the most pivotal moments for YouTube as a, as a, as a company. And I think just um, really resonated where they, you know, the, the whole mission of YouTube was to, they said, broadcast yourself, give everyone sort of a platform to become broadcasters. Uh, and for the first decade plus of the company, there were very few lines about sort of what was deemed responsible and respectable. I um, mean, here you had Logan Paul, who was at the time one of the most popular and still is popular YouTubers and as a mainstream celebrity who can launch his career on this platform, uh, he showed a video that depicted someone like hanging uh, from a suicide. And it was something where he, you know, it, he posted it online. It came, it was a viral hit. Um, it was over the holidays when a lot of people at the company weren't, uh, were not working. Uh, and it became one of these flashpoints where they had this, this sort of existential moment. They realized this, we can't just give these young people a uh, carte blanche to to um, post whatever they want, right? There, there are repercussions, um, and they have to kind of really change the rules and how it operates. And um, and it was just this. I thought it was this really fascinating moment of like modern celebrity, uh, where we have feel this need to kind of document everything, uh, including the, the death of another human being. How do you personally use YouTube? How do I personally? I think I use it probably. Uh, I'm in my sort of late 30s. I'd say like a lot of people my age and older uh, as a utility, right? I use it to. Um, I will look up recipes. I'll um, during the pandemic. I watched a lot of like exercise videos to try to stay in shape. Um, I use it to watch a lot of. I'm a big basketball fan. I use it to watch a lot of free clips and highlight reels of, of basketball games. Um, I, you know, I think that is a, a way that a large swath of the population use the, the site. Um, I don't use it like uh, necessarily like a lot of people younger than me do, which which is as a um, entertainment platform, as a, as a news platform, um, as sort of an all consumption like all encompassing. I don't necessarily follow YouTube creators the way I think that of uh, the younger generation does. For someone that has never thought about it maybe never watched it what is it what is youtube um you know youtube is many things i mean it is the world's and has been for a long time the world's biggest video platform it's sort of it's owned by google and i think it's it's really critical to think of it as um you know google for video right it is in much the same way that that google kind of 
uh, organizes the entire web, um, YouTube is basically um, created that where you have a video at sort of every subject imaginable. Um, and so it is this incredibly valuable archive. Um, it is entertainment. Um, it is the world's biggest music library. It's the world's probably the biggest podcasting library. It's certainly the biggest kids entertainment platform. Um, and I think it's the, I make the case in the book, it is the company that has shaped the future of, of the direction of like the, the internet commerce and like the sort of social media, not just as a phenomenon, but as a, as a business. Where is it physically located? YouTube is in San Bruno, California. So it's um, been there since early on. It was when it was acquired by Google in 2006. They had an office there. Uh, and Google has, for the most part, kept YouTube has its own separate headquarters, its own chief executive, uh, and it's its own office culture that, that's a little bit separate from Google. Um, but I you know, talk about in the book, they're, they're very closely intertwined. How long has Susan Wojcicki run Google? I mean, run YouTube. <clears throat> and uh, eventually I want to get to the garage story, but how long mm-hmm. has she run it? And what's, what makes her qualified to run it? So Wojcicki has run YouTube since uh, early 2014. Um, she is probably one of the most central and important people in, in Google history. I, I think arguably one of the most uh, powerful, influential women in Silicon Valley. Um, Google was started in her garage. Uh, so she had a connection with the founders of Google, a personal connection. Um, she was also one of the earliest employees there, their first marketer. Uh, in, there is... Um, there's certainly like people who, uh, at the time when she was appointed, there are people that were very surprised by that appointment. She has no background in media. Um, she'd never run a company that like 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 YouTube, right? It is it's an advertising business, um, but it's also the you know the world's largest media business. But she had at Google spent um, most of her time before then working on its uh, what we call think of as kind of display advertising business. So all the little banner ads you see on any website you visit are are likely powered by Google. Um, and YouTube's business is in many ways just taking that model where Google you know, sprays um, advertisements all across the Internet, and they're just applying that to video. Um, and so she was very qualified to run an advertising business. And from Google's perspective, that's what that YouTube needed to be. For it. Before she took over, YouTube was kind of bleeding money. And so she was brought in to help make it a, a profitable business. How much money total did they make last year? Uh, last year, I believe it was so the, the twenty-eight billion in advertising revenue. Um, so what we don't—that's you know what they disclose—is just their advertising revenue. We don't know. YouTube also has uh, a premium service where people will pay like ten dollars a month to um, have access to certain features, no ads, uh, a music service. Uh, they have an over-the-top TV cable package called, alternative called YouTube TV. Uh, they don't disclose how much money they make from those subscriptions, but I think most estimates are that that's pretty marginal. So I think you know probably close to around thirty billion. You open your book, <clears throat> the prologue, with the name Haji Daoud Nabi. Who is he, and why did you start with that? He was one of fifty-one victims of the Christchurch uh, massacre in, in twenty nineteen in um, New Zealand. In Christchurch, New Zealand, yeah. right? It was. Um, one of tragically uh, uh, something that's become very familiar to us. It was a mass shooting executed by uh, an avowed white supremacist. Um, 
and it had was tied into YouTube for for several reasons. Um, one is that the the shooter in that case actually broadcast. He did the, had a body camera that he broadcast the the shooting, um, which is this just uh, unbelievable horror that no one inside YouTube I think ever anticipated that their 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 service would be used this way. Um, there was also New Zealand government did an analysis uh, after the shooting and um, talked to the to the shooter and, and discovered that a lot of his worldview was shaped by the videos that he watched on YouTube. Um, and so it was a pivotal moment for the company that's, I think, still reckoning with that. And I think for society that is trying to understand how these platforms like YouTube that have transformed our life in the past two decades, uh, what real world impact they have. Um, and and I wanted to start with that story, and I wanted to start with the victims and sort of center them in the book. Was did he uh, have it attached to YouTube on a live basis when he did it? He was actually streaming on Facebook Live, which is a um, which Facebook set up to compete with YouTube, and then the video sort of jumped pretty quickly. Um, it seemed like people were re-uploading the footage onto YouTube. How did it change YouTube's life after that happened? So the the primary way is that after that they readjusted what what they called their hate speech rules, um, and so it, they they've been under criticism for for uh, certainly externally in, in the press in, in U.S. Congress and Europe. Um, what I talk about in the book was there's a lot of criticism inside the company that no one really understood. I think outside understood that the YouTube just the way it's structured, the way that they recommend videos, the way that they're sort of the way that they drive people to watch kind of consistently and um, and they really reward, their system tends to reward outrage and extreme videos, um, was propagating these uh, white nationalist beliefs. And so they, after the Christchurch shooting, they they took an action where they, they, they like a lot, they became much more strict about certain types of views um, that they see as discrimination around race and around ethnicity. Uh, they outlawed um, what they kind of deem uh, denying well-documented violent events. And so the most classic example is the Holocaust, right? There were, before this time, if you went on YouTube and said the Holocaust didn't happen, that was fine. You could That video could continue to stay on YouTube. And, and in many ways, in some ways, you can make money from that video. Um, it could be promoted from their algorithm. After that, the, the company decided they, re- they rewrote their policies to say you can no longer do that. Um, and, and other different cases like that. And I think, you know, since then, they've had a hard time you know, writing rules in, in, in their guidebook is one thing, but enforcing them and sort of identifying, um, you know, where people cross the line in the video, that is just an ongoing problem that, that they're never really going to solve. I've got a couple of uh, clips to run. The next one that I am going to run is supposedly the top music selection seen by something like a it run by 11 billion times. I wouldn't know about this if it wasn't for one of the players for the Washington Nationals who took this idea and became, during the World Series game back in 2019, became a big deal. I'm going to run it. It's a bit of a jolt for people who have never heard it. It's just, it's just about 39 seconds and then get you to talk about it. Shark, do 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 do, mommy shark. 
Mark Bergen, what is that? That's the song that's going to be stuck in my head for the rest of the day. Um, uh, that is, I, I believe it's, it holds the record for, for the most viewed. Um, you know what? In my research, I, I think I found a video. This is just a, a, sort of the marvel of YouTube. I believe it was 10 hours of that song on repeat. Um, and that exists on YouTube. It's been watched many times. And I think it suggests that, you know, how YouTube has become the de facto babysitter for, for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> So the, the company, there's, I talk about this in the book, it's really fascinating history where for, like, like many sites on the internet, commercial internet, they, from their onset um, in the fine print said, we're a site for, for people over 13 because there were rules about um, the data you can collect around minors. And so YouTube's lawyers and, and their founders decided, we're just not gonna, we're not gonna go after children because that's a whole regulatory complication. Um, where most of the internet's like really uh, unregulated, which is what Silicon Valley kind of prefers. That became about a decade ago really hard to ignore when you started this. You know, a lot of creators discovered that YouTube as a free service, you have the iPad was invented in, in 2010. Um, it was just a phenomenal way to entertain children. Um, and there are all sorts of new types of creativity. You know, I won't necessarily say about the quality of Baby Shark, it seems like an innocent song is certainly not educational um but you know it's it's is it a reflection of it's sort of like children's tv but you know as i discovered in research children's tv has been regulated um and you there are certain at least on, on broadcast television there has to be a certain amount of educational programming and there has to be a certain amount of um uh, you can't have overtly commercial messages and child labor there are child labor laws none of that existed on youtube um, and so in, within a few years, there was this explosion of content directed towards young children, often made by young children, um, really as a kind of wild west with, with no rules uh, and very little oversight. Let's say that you and I want to start a channel and we want to get the advertising in and we want to make some money. How do we do it? It's harder to do now. Um, for a long time, starting a decade, in 2012, it was fairly easy. You, we would start a channel, um, we'd make videos, and you, as long as that we didn't violate copyright rules, kind of taking, you know, as long as we didn't kind of just pirate videos from, from a, a TV show or a movie, um, we were pre pretty much cleared to uh, post on, on YouTube, and it was fairly easy to make money from their advertising system. So every dollar that a marketer gives YouTube, um, YouTube pays out 55 cents to the video creator that that ad runs on. If the ad runs, you know, often you see it before a video, sometimes in the middle of a video. Um, that changed, you know, we talked about at the beginning, Logan Paul, that incident with the, with the, in Japan, that was one of the several moments where YouTube sort of unruly stars misbehaves in ways that the company had to change the, the way that they, their financial system works. And so now it's much harder. You have to, hit a certain threshold of subscribers and, and views in order to make money. But how do we, let's say you and I form a company and we want to get on YouTube. Do we talk to a human being or do you do it all online? Oh God, no, no, just, just, you just go. 
You just you upload the video on their system and, and it's there. How do you do uh, that, though? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, is there a guidance somewhere that tells you exactly how to do that? Yeah, I, mean, I think that there, there's certainly cottage industries now that can can walk you through the basics um, in the sort of how to. Um, I mean, you can watch a YouTube video that shows you and then how to do that. And and the, the tricky part is not necessarily uploading video, which is relatively simple. It's the tricky part is getting an audience. Like we we could post this video and then you know I can send it and maybe my my mother would watch it. But um, in, in order to get an audience, that is something that you know even the best YouTubers don't necessarily have the have the formula for that um and and by now it's a very crowded like there are just um millions of youtubers that are over two million are making money on the platform millions and more are trying to make money it is an incredibly crowded place is it all done uh say for instance if you're making money you just get a check in the mail uh effectively yeah i mean youtube has is, is basically one of the biggest uh internet economy has ever created um and so it it comes out cuts like a cuts a monthly check based on your uh the, the number of ads that you run uh and in a formula that that's relatively you know the, the ads have are very like television they have varying costs um you know if you have a certain if you're making um educational videos you tend to get better ad rates because advertisers are more willing to um to to sponsor that but but some of if you're um you know, it really depends on it, it's all sort of a secret formula and to be very clear like youtube as a company doesn't provide a lot of transparency around this like unless you're a really big star it is hard to even get in touch with a customer support representative there right um google tends to favor systems that that work on on software and machines rather than having to hire a bunch of uh, call support um and so it's it's a very opaque system This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Tiny little thing, when you watch anything on YouTube... There are two different ways that you know commercials are coming. One, the little block in the corner, after five seconds, you can get rid of the ad, or the ad is there and you have to see the whole thing. What's the difference between those two, and what makes money for you if you've got something, a channel or whatever you're, you have on YouTube? Yeah, the, the, the one you described is, is actually it's called a skippable ad, and it does precisely that. Um, and it's sort of remarkable. I mean, I still struggle with this to think about how many how many people will not you know i I, if i see that i'm skipping too right it's sort of uh the way that that youtube system works is the advertiser only pays if if someone does not skip if someone watched the entire ad um this was something that that youtube invented this format and it's been um they don't disclose this this data but from from what we can understand it's it's remarkably it's done remarkably well um and i think 
what happens there is they're able to charge higher rates. And the example that someone at, at YouTube, a former executive told me, you know, it's imagine that Nike uh, makes this commercial that everyone kind of wants to watch. It's a really, you know, we've seen, we've all seen like these, Nike is a good example. These sports companies can, can make really compelling advertisements, commercials. If they make an ad that no, that very few people are skipping, then Adidas will want to pay more to get in front of viewers with their ad. Um, and so that's, and, and YouTube is not, I mean, these are not necessarily happening with sort of like in the television world with handshake agreements. This is an automated system with algorithms that are set up to, uh, on YouTube side, make as much money as possible from these ads. And so um, in, in often in case the skippable ads tend to be the most expensive if, um, if you're an online creator. Uh, the most rewarding. Who's PewDiePie? PewDiePie. Um, PewDiePie is the uh, YouTube handle for uh, a Swedish um, YouTuber and video game streamer, mostly uh, Felix Shelberg. Um, he was for a long time, uh, for for about a decade, starting in, in 2012, the most successful and and probably one of the most um, like handsomely rewarded. Uh, the wealthiest YouTubers. Um, and he has gone through a series of controversies with the company, uh, starting kind of right, right around the Trump election, um, with the videos that, that, uh, many, uh, accused of, of being, uh, anti-Semitic, um, and, and, and problematic and hateful. Um, and he's been one of the most fascinating because of that relationship, the, the way that, you know, he has had, all sorts of headaches and problems for YouTube. And yet he has a devoted audience and is sort of, he's a, been this personification of the new type of celebrity that YouTube wanted to invent it, wanted to invent um, and, and in many ways has invented. And um, I, I think he's just, he's at the center of, of uh, many of YouTube's major issues of the past decade. How did he start? Did they know him at YouTube when he started? Uh, no, he was one of, um, you know, hundreds of, not, not thousands of, uh, I think he was in college, college kids that was uh, uploading video games. He plays video games. This is what he mostly did. He would play a video game and then he would stick the camera, a web camera on his face and do kind of color commentary. Well, kind of like what you imagine when you're watching a, a baseball game. Um, and this was a genre that took off in, on, on YouTube for a couple of reasons. One, it's people are entertained by it. Um, Two is, is it's fairly cheap. Like it, you don't, there, there's not a lot of editing required. You don't need a green screen. You don't need a big, you don't need a script screenwriters. It is just one person, a camera and a video game. The, we, we have a, a little clip. You can't see him. And that's, I suspect half the thing that uh, makes it interesting, but you can just hear it. It's about a minute long. PewDiePie, P-E-W-D-I-E-P-I-E. And this is something called the dumbest deaths in history. And it's from uh, 2021. He had 3.9 million views. Here it is, and I'll get your comment afterwards. Dumb ways to death. So many dumb ways to death. Yeah! Back with a new camera, new mic, shaved face, ready to rate some dead people's deaths. Uh, this is called victims of the 1580s dance plague. Excuse me, what? This is an historical event in the Holy Roman Empire. Now wait, I thought you were talking about- Oh, it happened many times. Dance plagues are a thing, we gotta watch out. 
Okay, another uh, death from laughter. This uh, dude was Italian. Who is it? Alright, this joke is off the hook, man. This gotta be some Pickle Rick level. Okay, let's hear this joke. Uh, he died from laughing too much at an obscene joke during a meal in Venice. That's it? What was the joke? It was so funny, no one lived to tell the tale. Hans Steininger. Look at this dude! Look at that man's beard. Hell yeah. He died from his beard. <laughs> he died when he broke his neck by tripping over his own beard. I'm not sure it would help you to see it. Uh, what age group watches PewDiePie? Um, that's a good question. I mean, uh, we don't know. I think they're estimates. I, I think we would say to assume it's probably in the like, 12 to 24 age range. What do they like about it? Um, you know, I think there's a... There are a couple things. Uh, one, you know, he, if, if you saw the clip, he was sort of basically like going around Wikipedia, right? And and this is like, he is sort of um, part of this uh, generation of, of YouTubers that uh, often it makes videos about the internet and about the internet culture. Um, and I think one of my theories that I kind of developed from talking to people inside the company is like, you know, the internet is, and, and YouTube is just a very it can be a very befuddling, confusing place. Um, and it, it's certainly like I, I am a professional journalist that covers tech and social media, and I am often very confused about, about the trends and the phenomenons that happen, right? Uh, and if you have someone, like what PewDiePie often does is, is he kind of becomes this navigator of, of online culture uh, in a translator, um, and, and he's also driving it in many ways. And so I think that's entertaining when people can, um, have someone to kind of guide them around. Um, I mean, he's clearly like, he's an online comic and presents himself that, that way. What I think is also unique is that, you know, unlike a reality TV star or a, a television star, he often reveals, you know, you saw the beginning of that clip, how he's talking about just that he shaved his face, right? And that he bought new equipment. Um, you know, even though PewDiePie is not his real name, most people, uh, sociologists will call this a parasocial relationship where the fans... They don't know him. They've never met Felix Shelberg, the human being, but they feel like they know him. And they have this in they're invested in his success and his performance as a as an online creator in a way that um, I don't think really happened in, in media before. It doesn't happen with other types of celebrity and, and reality TV. And that with, with that has a, a this, you know, can create new business models where he can tell fans to buy a certain item and they're going to go out and buy it. Um, and it has a dark side, which is what, when he is making choices that um, have big society, societal risks, he has a lot of fans and, and that are extremely devoted to him and are going to take you know, become like trolls. And uh, he calls them the bro army. Uh, and we've seen that become very misogynistic and have this sort of toxic underbelly. Has he ever been sued? Oh, good question. Um, not that I'm aware of. And is he still active? He is still active. He is no longer the. He kind of lost the crown um, as the. He was for a long time the most subscribed. He was a YouTuber with the most subscribers. Uh, he lost that. I believe it's now sort of. There are three different new new kings of YouTube. One is a Bollywood entertainment channel. Uh, one is a kids channel, and and the third is a is a creator named Mr. Beast. I got online this morning and looked at Mr. Beast. Um, what's the attraction there? Do you think? Can you explain what he does? 
Sure, oh, Mr. Beast is a really interesting new phenomenon. He he's he's sort of like reality TV for the YouTube generation. Um, he is largely famous for his sort of stunts of excess. Um, he will do something kind of these are these are reality TV formats, right? But he will um, have a contest where he has you know uh, one I'm just thinking of. Uh, maybe a dozen people putting their hands on a really expensive car and the last person to uh, keep their hand on the car will get to keep the car. Um, Or he will pretend to be an Uber driver and then at the end of the Uber ride, he gives the person in the car who took the ride with him this really nice Tesla, right? (laughs) Like he does these, um, and sometimes they're they're charities. Uh, He will film himself trapped inside of a box for 24 hours. Like um, these are formats that have been proven successful on reality TV um he is part of this generation he's been on on youtube since he was making videos on youtube since he was 12 years old i think he's maybe 24 now um and he does it sort of he spends a lot of money a a pretty major media business to make these videos uh and and it ends up becoming like pretty fairly profitable Uh, c-span has a lot of c-span's material has ended up on youtube now we have a channel which we have an arrangement, you know, uh, like we were talking about earlier. But an enormous amount of our, our material finds its way to YouTube, and we didn't give anybody permission to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what? How often has that happened? And I, at some point, I want you to tell us about the Viacom suit because I suspect it's all wrapped up in that. Yeah, I mean, this was a problem that emerged pretty early on uh, with YouTube. One of the, the the one that the staff struggled to sort of stamp out was. Um, uh, WWE wrestling became where fans were just would would uh, pirate the videos and, and put them up without permission. Um, and so, you know, the fundamental issue, and you brought up the Viacom lawsuit. This, so, the Viacom sued YouTube for a billion dollars for copyright infringement in March of 2007, uh, which was a few months after Google purchased YouTube. Uh, and, and the fundamental issue that Viacom claimed was that YouTube was knowingly allowing Viacom to Viacom owned. MTV, Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, allowing their shows to be re-uploaded without their permission and then making money from them. And, and the copyright law in the U.S. is, is it makes it very clear that you can't sort of have commercial success from pirated footage. Uh, what YouTube built uh, in, in, in probably the most successful sort of technology that they've made is something called Content ID that uh, automatically... You know, C-SPAN, for instance, C-SPAN, we can, can, can go in and upload their their footage. And then YouTube, the way it's supposed to work is that every time someone uh, goes around C-SPAN and, say, uploads footage without, without the um, station's permission, then YouTube will alert the copyright owner and say, we found this video footage here. Uh, and you have two options. You can take it down, like a request to remove it, or you can just make money from the ads that run. Um, and that is an arrangement that has worked very well for YouTube because a lot of media companies are interested in like, they're, they're fine with having the material remain on YouTube. It, it is successful. It is a very good marketing channel. And then they end up making all the money from the ads anyway. Um, and so I think because of that, because of very, you know, Google has uh, incredibly well-paid and savvy lawyers, um, they were able to, to fend off the, the Viacom lawsuit. Um, and, and basically keep YouTube in, in existence because of those that that system in place. Is there any way I, I get online to f- see if I can find out how many servers they 
have to be able to do this billions and billions of hours. I, I found, and I'm sure, I never quite trust these numbers, but I found that there were something like 36 locations around the world. What are your numbers, and do you have any idea how many servers they've had to buy to service this institution? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, YouTube is so intertwined with Google on the sort of back-end technology that I think it's it's hard for us to, to say. Um, you, you, it, as far as I understand, it's not like Google will, Google has, um, you know, data centers across the world, dozens of them, and, and, and I think some of their systems are, uh, it's not like you know, have one piece of machinery that's designed just to compress YouTube video footage and another piece of machinery that's designed to, to work on its search engine, right? It's sort of all part of the same um, overarching technology and system. Um, so I think, to answer your question, I think YouTube would have a lot more servers if it wasn't part of Google. Google is the world's uh, most effective technology company at sort of squeezing out um efficiency from their from their machines and their operate like they have for a long time but you know youtube was bleeding money um, because it is it's more expensive to to you know that basically host this free video and so much of it um and so for it was basically google's ad, successful advertising business was um subsidizing the, the youtube machine like youtube service so i don't have a good answer for you as far as the exact number who do you credit for figuring out the advertising part of all this um i i think so there was a ceo so susan wachiski was certainly um has done has helped youtube's business grow not necessarily from zero but from close to zero to to what it is today and she also navigated you know for a, almost a year in 2017 you saw the biggest advertisers on the platform boycotting the service over for extremist videos and she is um if you're a shareholder in Google, you're very happy with her ability to get advertisers to come back and to build a, a pretty sustainable business from that. Um, I think there's credit before her. There was a, a chief executive named Salar Kamanger and his deputy, Shashir Mahotra, were the two that most people at the company sort of credit for taking it from from a um, an unprofitable business into something in shape for, for uh, uh, profitability. I want to ask you about the individuals who started it, but first, uh, about you. Uh, give us your background. Where, what part of the country did you come from originally? Where did you go to school, and what were your first jobs? Oh, wow. I wasn't prepared to answer that. Uh, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. Um, I went to school nearby in the College of Worcester, which is in northeastern Ohio. Uh, I believe YouTube was started when I was... Uh, sophomore or junior in high school or college rather and i can't i was trying to remember like the first time i remember encountering videos but um and and my first uh i my first job was actually delivering the local newspaper in columbus the columbus dispatch uh maybe that started my uh, interest in, in journalism um i have been covering google uh primarily since since 2015 but and you went on. That, you went on from Worcester to the University of Chicago. What did you study there? Oh yeah, uh, I studied uh, public policy, um, and and have it uh, still have it an interest in the intersection of, of business and policy. When did you decide you wanted to be in this writing business and covering news? Uh, good question. I think I decided bef- around the financial crisis, and then I had to figure out how to make a living doing it. <laughs> um, uh, 
it, it was yeah around the financial crisis was a moment where I I thought that this you know being able to I was really inspired by explanatory journalism that could unpack something like as complex as the housing crash um, and I thought that was a really interesting uh, something I wanted to do professionally and uh, I ended up chasing that sort of I spent my formative years as a journalist working in India. Um, and that's actually how I started writing about the technology industry. For how long were you in India? Uh, for about two years. And you live where today? Uh, I'm in the Bay Area um, and, and have been there uh, for for seven years and, uh, and with a publication called Recode and then Bloomberg, uh, writing about Google, uh, the parent company Alphabet. Um, and, and during that time, YouTube became just a a bigger and bigger part of, of uh, YouTube, Google, sorry, Google's business, and this much more, much more prominent and complicated part of, of their like political and, and societal issues. Who would not talk to you for this book? Uh, Susan Wojcicki, one. Um, I did not get an interview with, with Susan, who's the uh, chief executive. Um, uh, I don't have a good answer for you why that is. I, I've written some I, I think fair but but critical stories about the the company for Bloomberg uh, including about some of like decisions that she made and its impact on on um, sort of not listening to ad- advice about their their systems and their metrics um, I've got a, a clip of her um, she's a Harvard graduate during this time with Google and with YouTube she's had five children and it, it, you can tell doesn't her husband work for Google her husband, as far as I know, still works for Google, yes. Just want everybody to hear her voice, and she's talking about something that I will ask you to follow up on. Let's listen to Susan Wojcicki. As soon as the war broke out, we realized this was an incredibly important time for us to get it right with regard to our responsibility. And you know, we made a number of really, really tough decisions. One of them involved how we handled Russian state-sponsored media. Um, we had lots of requests from various governments, but looking at our, politi- our policy framework, we also decided to suspend that media globally. Um, we also extended our policies with regard to how we handle verified violent events. The reason we are still serving in Russia, and we believe that that is important, is that we're able to, to deliver independent news into Russia. And so the average citizen in Russia can access for free the same information that you can access here from, from Davos, which we believe is really important to be able to help citizens know what's going on and have perspectives from the outside world. What else can you tell us about her background and how she got to where she is? Yeah, I mean, so um, Wojcicki is, uh, she is uh, the, the child of two exceptional parents. Uh, you know, her, her father was a professor at Stanford. Her mother has been, has taught journalism actually for a long time in, in Palo Alto. Um, her, her one sister is a fairly accomplished doctor. Her another sister, her sister Anne, uh, started and runs 23andMe, uh, a genetics company. Um, and so Anne was, for, for a while, married to Sergey Brin, who was one of the co-founders at, at Google. Um, this is, I, I think, by way of setting up, like it is, many people at, at Google talk to me about how, um, you know, Susan Wojcicki is an accomplished executive. She is competent as, as a manager. She clearly, like, uh, is successful in the digital advertising world. I think it's really important to understand that she is 
close, um, has a familial closeness to the Google founders. Um, and so, the, I, you know, another group of people, another people that didn't speak to me with the Google founders and uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin have not spoken to a journalist, I think, in seven years. Um, so I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't too offended. But um, they are, they're still, they're, they're no longer, they're no longer involved day to day with the company, but they're still the majority shareholders of Alphabet, which is Google's parent company. And there's, so they're still the owners of this incredibly important uh, company. And they've, they've been longtime decision makers there. They became fabulously successful and wealthy before they were 30 um, and have a close, tight knit group of people that they trust um, and are, are loyal to them. They like turn to counsel and Susan Wojcicki is, is there. Um, and I think that's a major explanation. Like at, at the time, Larry Page was CEO of Google when he appointed Susan Wojcicki to run YouTube. And from everyone I've spoken to who was around that time, it was in, in part to keep her there at the company. And he wanted to um, put someone that he trusted in that role. Susan Wojcicki's garage and the three people that started YouTube. How did that come together? And how is it that they rented 2,000 square feet in her garage? Oh, yeah. So these were the founders of Google that rented space in her garage. Um, oh, that's right. Up, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. I'm confused. Yeah, <laughs> I'm definitely confused with all these names. But go ahead. That's okay. Um, yeah, they, they uh, it was through a, a Sergey Brin married her sister, had a connection there. And, and so that was, you know, Google's history it was bo- both Google and YouTube started in garages. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the, the saying in Silicon Valley is that even if you're very successful like Google, you're always worried about the next startup starting in a garage. And and I think in many ways, you know, YouTube was um, Google had a competing service called Google Video that Susan Wojcicki was involved with running at the time in 2005. It was not doing well compared to YouTube. YouTube was taking off and, and had it was you know, a lot of young people. Were, it was really popular at the time. It was sort of it's hard for us to imagine, but this was a time when MySpace was very popular. So MySpace and YouTube were the kind of hottest things in tech. Um, YouTube was also a very popular search destination. So people were going to YouTube.com to search for things like how-to videos or just like entertainment instructions. This to Google was a threat. And uh, oftentimes in the history of, of Silicon Valley, it, it is you either try to squash your competition or you buy them. And so Google decided to buy them. So what garage did the three founders of YouTube work out of? That was so Chad Hurley was the one of the founders and the first chief executive. Uh, it was his garage. Um, the three founders had met and had uh, you know, finan- commercial and, and financial success from PayPal, uh, the, their first company. Uh, and Chad Hurley was an early designer at PayPal. Um, and they were all, the three of them were sort of kicking around an idea for a new business in his garage uh, when they, they came up with YouTube. Who else came out of PayPal besides Peter Thiel? Uh, famously, uh, Elon Musk, um, who is now in, back in social media um, with, with Twitter. I mean, PayPal is, um, we talk about it, the, the term PayPal mafia. Um, uh, Reid Hoffman, who is the founder of LinkedIn, the founder of Yelp, um, it, it it has it, it spawned this generation of and I, to be clear like men um, it, it was the PayPal and, and a lot of these companies are like mostly dominated by male and have like few 
few uh, space for, for female leaders. Go back to Chad Hurley, Jawad Karim, and Stephen Chen, the three founders of YouTube. How did they come together? What was their age at the time? Uh, I believe Chad was the oldest at 28. Um, and I think the other two were 27. Um, they had they had met at, at, at PayPal. Um, this was a time when it was, you know, what we call Web 2.0, um, sort of beginning of this, not just where the Internet was not just a passive experience that people would go on and say, like, read from a New York Times or a blog or sorry, not just read from the New York Times or or watch um, footage from from mainstream media, but they could actually create their own. So um, MySpace was one. Facebook was started just months before. Um, Flickr was a photo sharing app uh, service um, that was started. And, and the, uh, there were, at the time, there was a recognition that on video was moving to the internet. Uh, but it was, two things were, were not very clear. One was just to how to do that technologically. It was kind of hard at the time to like process and upload video smoothly. And then there was a lot of, it wasn't clear about what the business model was, but there was enough um, momentum and interest in amateur video kind of landing and making video sharing easy. And that's what YouTube clicked onto, right? They were the first company to make it uh, very accessible and easy to use. That was a major part of their success. Where are they now? What are they doing? The three? Um, Mostly enjoying their their wealth. Um, How much they make? Sorry? How much did they make? Oh, uh, this was came out in the Bicom lawsuit. That's the only reason we knew them. I think from the, I believe, um, Chad, so Chad Hurley and Steve Chen stayed around for the acquisition. Jawad Kareem, who's the third founder, left pretty early on before Google acquired them. I think he made close to $60 million and And I th- these are payouts, not just one lump sum. I think Chad and Steve are close to $300 million, um, is my understanding. Um, enough to, you know, for, for many people have a comfortable existence for the rest of their lives. Um, uh, Chad, they're, they've all, uh, Chad and Steve kind of started another video company. Um, they've all been, I think they're all, three of them are working as investors and mentors. Um, Steve Chen worked for Google Ventures, which was Google's uh, venture capital arm. Um, they, they, you know, the thing about all three of them are, uh, they are certainly talented uh, and um, and and some like kind of created this this uh, you know very important institution, but none of them, at least people I talked to, none of them had like these major egos, right? Um, and they're not well known. They're not as well known as Mark Zuckerberg, obviously, or or Jack Dorsey, uh, and they haven't really been the front of center of, of Silicon Valley, and and maybe that's part of their their personality, um, and 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 perhaps they like just they, whether they just didn't find something else after YouTube that was kind of a a one-hit wonder, or uh, they prefer to to play like the investor role. Who give us some idea of who's made a tremendous amount of money after uh, putting uh, video on YouTube? Besides, I assume is there any figure on uh, PewDiePie's <clears throat> uh, how much money he's made? Uh, there have been some estimates. I mean, I, in my reporting, I got some internal figures um, that was over, uh, I think, a seven-year span. And it was, I believe, close to 30 million or, or above 30 million. Um, and, you know, so like PewDiePie has certainly like made a successful um, business. You know, they're, they're, I think they're, 
there you you sell that clip there are certainly people that argue like uh it's very strange and bewildering that that someone like him could have such a successful career they the flip side of that is the audience that he demands like the number of people that watch his videos um it's kind of disproportionate to say that the the salaries that um that a movie star can pull down um and so mr beast is another one mr beast has certainly had a successful career for a long time the most uh the richest youtuber was a uh a child named ryan kaji um who i believe is now 10 years old um and he went from posting like just videos of his family to creating a, a you know a production studio that is worth over 30 million I got on this morning and looked at <clears throat> Ryan Kaji. Um, do you know any more about him and family and where they're located and why he uh, struck a positive note with everybody? Um, you know, they, I believe they, they may have just recently moved. I think they were in Houston and maybe moved to Hawaii. But um, they, like many successful YouTubers, um, don't love to broadcast where they live. I think it's understandable, especially young kids. Um, you know, there are many strange people out there, right? And, and so they want to keep as much as they can uh, private life. So I say that, you know, <laughs> these are people that Ryan Kaji has been on YouTube since he was three years old. And so it's, it's this weird dissonance between his parents saying that they want to respect his privacy and the fact that they've basically like more than two thirds of his life has been lived on camera. Um, he's part of a now many dozens of very successful child um children on youtube some he he became famous uh with toy unboxing which is a genre that um came up about a decade ago which is kind of exactly what it sounds like right he will the videos are often maybe 15 to 20 minutes long and most of them are filled with him you know unboxing or playing with toys um he's kind of graduated from that and and, and part of it's his age part of it is like the youtube algorithm is starting to reward those types of videos less um, because of some scrutiny that, that the company has faced. Um, I mean, most people I talk to uh, who have spent time around him and his family, his parents are, are young, they're younger than me, um, say that they're a well-adjusted uh, family. And, you know, there is a, I talked to one, for the book, I talked to one of his managers or kind of works with him and his, his parents' company. And, you know, the criticism is, uh, sort of familiar to everyone. You know, you, what what is it like to what how what life will this child have after they've been so famous so young? There's so many examples in Hollywood of that going wrong, um, and we we've all seen the examples of stage parents and and how that can have just like terrible pressures on on the, on the child's life. The the response that the manager told me was that Ryan's never had to audition once in his life. Right, that he unlike in Hollywood, there are this is what YouTube. Uh, prides itself on there's there's no casting director there's no producer there's no director telling uh someone or a child that they're not good enough right there is just they they post a video online it takes off or it doesn't i um caught this sentence from you in your book older americans probably visited youtube rarely certainly didn't rely on it for news i'm an older american i get on youtube all the time i find an enormous amount of history how does that fit in all this and how much is that watch? And I assume I'm in the minority, but there's, I don't care what war you want to find out about or, or what person in history, there's something on YouTube like that. And I wonder how much 
business there is from that uh, that viewpoint. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, the great thing about YouTube is I can always be disproven whenever I make blanket claims. So, <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I think, I mean, for, for, certainly you're right. Look, there's there is archival. Um, there's, there's enough archival footage about kind of any topic imaginable, um, and I also like. I'm a big jazz fan, and so you can go back and watch all these videos of jazz musicians playing and sort of magical that they're there. I don't know from a business perspective. I think it's probably a, maybe a rounding error compared to, like, video games and, and beauty and, and kids, these, like, much bigger topics on YouTube. But it's it's still um, it's still important. I, I think in that, with that sentence and, and that context there was relative to Facebook, uh, which is the sort of YouTube is often – um, Facebook, they were started around the same time. They faced many of the same criticisms. Uh, however, Facebook has, I think you probably may agree, faced a lot more criticisms around its role in society, around misinformation, around sort of destructive uh, social patterns and the type. And that part of that is because Facebook is much more prominent where um, contemporary, where we see people having arguments and read like a lot of new like actual media contemporary like news comes on facebook people go to facebook for that not in the same way that people certainly can watch cnn on youtube um and, and watch sort of major breaking news events but facebook and twitter have been much more dominant as far as um news consumption and then a lot they're a lot more much more associated with the problems of echo chambers and filter bubbles and all the sort of contemporary problems of social media um, and, and to be honest, part of that is because Donald Trump did not use YouTube as much as he used Twitter and Facebook. Back to uh, what Susan Woditsky said about being in Russia. I'm a little confused. Uh, I, I gather that YouTube took off RT, Radio Russia Today, but YouTube is still in Russia. And here's the odd thing. If you go on Google and ask for Russia Today, the entire channel comes up. So you can watch it on Google, but you can't watch it on YouTube in their own. I mean, their Google owns YouTube. And YouTube is not allowed to be in China, where Google has done a lot of business. So fill in the blanks on all that. Um, sure. Russia, I mean, Russia is uh, an ongoing and fascinating story as far as I know. Like, so, so Facebook is, is no longer operating in Russia. Netflix... It's no longer operating there. YouTube is um, the, as far as like the major sort of media platform, U.S. media platform still operating in Russia. And you saw Susan Wojcicki's, you heard her explanation um, for that from, from the Google perspective. They have pulled their advertising business there. So um, they're no longer making an advertising, but they, they kicked up their video platform. Uh, I, I have a couple theories, sort of, in, from my reporting and understanding. Part of part of that is YouTube is immensely popular in, in Russia. There is a Facebook competitor in Russia uh, that has a bigger, like, sizable market share. There's real. There, there's a video service. There's no real comparable video service. Um, and R Russia, both you have uh, Russia Today and Sputnik, these channels that have um, become, until they were banned by YouTube, become very popular uh, in and outside of Russia. You also have the opposition party uh, has uh, several popular channels. And, and, and so I think YouTube is accurate to say that they are they have been hosting um, uh, videos and media that are critical of the state in and, and that role they play in other countries, too. Um, 
where it goes from, I mean, I, it'd be really interesting to see where it goes from there. I, I think that for a while it was uh, unclear how much of that was Google's decision versus um, how much of it is the Russian government's decision, right? If, if it's for YouTube to remain operating there and, and how long they can continue to, I, I think there have been several reports about uh, Russian, the Kremlin requesting that YouTube take down videos. And um, the, it, for China, just briefly, so Google pulled most of its services, including search and, and advertising from China, mainland China in 2010. YouTube never operated in China. I have some reporting in my book that they had plans to, um, but they never have. Um, and, and by now, there, there are so many um, competitors to, to YouTube, including the, the, the Chinese version of TikTok, Doyen, that uh, I, I don't, even if YouTube went into China, I, I doubt it would have much of a foothold. How many people work for YouTube? That is a good question. I can't give you a definitive answer. Um, Are people, it, it, I, go ahead. Uh, over, I, my guess is it's um, north of 10,000. And are they located, any of them located around the world? Uh, yes. Uh, YouTube, like Google, has offices uh, all, all around the world. Um, in pri- primarily, they're, they're in their headquarters and, and then in Europe. Um, YouTube is, YouTube's biggest market by users, by viewers, is, is India. Um, and they certainly have a lot of people in, in investing a lot more in Southeast Asia. In your book on page 121, you say starting in 2009, TV viewership began to slip, falling for a quarter or two and then dropping off a cliff. What caused that? And I assume what you mean by TV viewership over the air television? Yeah, we sort of like traditional linear television. Um, I think there were a couple of factors. One is is YouTube uh, and the other is Netflix. Like this was around the time that Netflix was really starting to take off, um, and I think that that YouTube and sort of the, the streamers, Netflix and now Amazon Prime and, and Disney and um, all these sort of subscription streaming services, um, combined with YouTube, TikTok, um, are are continue to eat into like the share of time that that people spend on on television. What's the difference between YouTube and TikTok? Uh, well, there's the there's the parent side. So TikTok is owned by uh, a Chinese company called ByteDance. Um, then there's the product side, which is TikTok is, um, I think TikTok sort of, so it's, it's a short form video. It's it's largely like under a minute. Um, it is it is meant to be sort of it's an app that is based on you. You flip through with your with your thumb, and you go through as many videos as possible, right? And you can kind of loop them. Some of them play in a loop if you want, or you flip on to the next one um youtube has traditionally been you, you know you watch a video and then even on the mobile app you have to kind of scroll down to click on the next one it could um right and youtube since uh, has responded to tiktok by introducing a feature they call shorts which is basically a tiktok copycat and so it is youtube short youtube videos that are vertical like tiktok uh, as opposed to the sort of the, the more of the traditional like horizontal screen um and you can flip through them just the same way as TikTok. What was the hardest part uh, for you in writing this book and researching? Uh, so Google, um, like many tech companies, uh, has strict non-disclosure agreements for its employees. Uh, they, you know, they're um, they're not they're not as secretive as Apple uh, or, or Amazon, um, but they are 
their relationship with they, they tell their employees not to speak to journalists um and so often what happens is you kind of get the the corporate story that that is told through a particular lens and a narrative and so i did my best to talk to i talked to over 100 current and former employees i think the hardest part was getting people who currently were at youtube to you know tell the the real honest truth about about the company its operations have you gotten any feedback from youtube since the book came out uh they haven't denied anything um there's been no official so so I, i'm pretty confident in my reporting um you know they i gave them ample chance to to come out and comment uh which was all included in, in the book um I think there are certain parts of it that I don't love, but but I, like the feedback so far has been that it's uh, honest and fair. A couple of statistics. We wind this up. Male to female. What's the ratio of, of uh, who views? Uh, this is not public, as far as I understand. In my reporting, it skews pretty heavily, and I don't know how the I don't have a percentage for you, but it skews heavily towards male. How about the the big? What's the biggest number? I mean, I've seen a ton of numbers online and in your book, uh, like a billion hours of content is watched across the world every day. Uh, one hundred twenty-two million active users daily. These are figures I've gotten in different places. Most YouTubers fall in the age group of fifteen to thirty-five. Um, help me out on all that. Yeah, I think the most the, the number. The number that I always I still struggle to wrap my head around is uh, 500 hours of video are uploaded every minute. Um, so that is like every 60 sec new video footage, uh, 500 hours. And this this is this that is a, is a couple years stale. So at this point, it's probably more than 500 hours. So that's just the amount of sheer video footage that is added to YouTube. Uh, every single minute uh, and consistently and and that just gives you a sense about the the scale and the the operational complexity of something that we've never seen before one last uh, couple questions on chapter nine called nerd fighters Mm -hmm. Uh, you say not far away in downtown los angeles freddie wong the guitar hero star began his youtube glory days in an apartment with three other aspiring filmmakers who is freddie wong and what's that story uh, Freddie Wong was one of the earliest YouTubers, and in, in, in I, I mean, I have this tremendous amount of respect for him as a, as a as a creative person, and like he was part of this generation that was, this was you know YouTube early on started paying its creators, but from the onset, it, there was no financial reward or guarantee, uh, and so many people like like Freddie, he was in college when YouTube came around and uh, and made these like really inventive short films that he started to upload on YouTube. Um, he had no this was this was not a guarantee right he wasn't doing it for money he wasn't doing it to be an influencer he wasn't even i i think he was doing it to to create a um to pursue a, a creative act to, to put something creative into the world to like experiment with a canvas um and i told that story because i think that he's part of a generation and a type of youtuber that too often the the company ignored the title of your book is like comma comment comma subscribe how did you uh, get to that point where you named it? who named it uh my agent came up with that one i can't take credit <laughs> um it is i mean it's it's a it's a great title it's it's familiar 
enough to anyone who's watched enough YouTube that it is the mantra of, of uh, a lot of YouTubers that, you know, it is these sort of, um, it's, it's what they expect. It's a current, it's a currency of social media, right? Um, you and I are going on YouTube. We're not paying for anything. Uh, uh, and so it's, you know, the expectation here is in, in, in like the demand that in order to achieve success on YouTube, in order to achieve fame, you need to get people to, to like, you need to get people to engage, you need to get people to subscribe. It's, it's this sort of constant, I think it's almost desperation and need that the company set up. Um, and, and I, you know, it's almost, I meant it kind of, it's resembles, um, it, like it's sort of endorphins. It, it's it sort of resembles a drug, right? It's, it's something that, that, um, social media has been compared to tobacco. And I think there's uh, some definite truth to that comparison. The subtitle of like, comment, and subscribe there is Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. Our guest has been Mark Bergen. We thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.